It is interesting here to note how the wise father sees things from his upstairs window. He ascribes blame to the young man for being foolish. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time is culpably stupid. If you wander into the lion enclosure at the zoo, you cannot claim foul play when you get eaten. So here, this young fool went looking for trouble and it found him. And yet the unchaste wife is to blame as well. The Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It does not bow before the current social trend. It tells the truth. And the truth is that there is plenty of blame to go around in this scenario. And it falls more or less equally on parties representing both genders. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There is generally plenty of blame to go around when it comes to sexual sin. In our cultural moment, it tends to be celebrated when we place 100% of the blame on men. And it can get you into a fair bit of trouble when you say anything at all about female behavior. But the Bible was written long before the sensibilities of the current day, and that is part of its value and attraction to us. It hasn't been shaped by contemporary politics or debates. It tells the truth from a position of detachment. Like the wise father looking down on the street below in this story, the Bible gives us an elevated perspective on this matter, one that we would be very wise to attend to as we consider the issue of human sexuality. Proverbs is a very practical book. It tells the truth about issues that matter, and it pulls no punches in doing so. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 7. The extended prologue in the book of Proverbs consists of 12 introductory poems about wisdom. Here in chapter 7, we have another fatherly talk, this one on the tactics used by the seductive woman. The father's going to great lengths here to adultery-proof his son. This may even feel excessive to the modern-day reader, but it reflects the seriousness of this sin within the biblical worldview. And there may also be another reason. Bruce Walkie says here, The unfaithful wife, however, may function as well as a symbolic representation of a seductive worldview foreign to true Israel, God's son. Close quote. Keywords as well. One of the things we struggle with as contemporary Western readers is the capacity of the Holy Scriptures to say two things at once. Is Song of Solomon a poem about marital love? Yes. Is it also a symbolic depiction of God's pursuit of his covenant people and their joyful response to him? Yes. So too here in Proverbs. I think that Solomon intends for us to hear his repeated counsels against adultery in spiritual stereo. I think he means for us to hear these speeches first and foremost as warnings against actual adultery that we need to heed ourselves and that we need to pass on to our children. But then I think he also means for us to hear them as warnings against the danger of being seduced by the whore of Babylon the spirit of the age, the siren song, call it whatever you want. He is saying, there's always going to be a voice trying to lure you onto the rocks of moral, cultural, personal, social, and spiritual ruin. 
run away. Turn away from that. Love the right voice and you will live the right life. Love the wrong voice and you will stumble headlong into ruin. The Bible can and sometimes does say two true things simultaneously. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Once again, the father begins his speech with an appeal to diligent attention. The son is to hear and he is to keep or guard the instruction that he is being given. The father tells him to think of it as if it were the apple of his eye, referring to the pupil. The eye, of course, is one of the most sensitive parts of the body and people instinctively protect their eyes from any kind of unwanted contact. Apply that principle to this precious instruction. Guard it, because the culture will try to poke holes in it and chip away at it, but don't let that happen. This reminds me a little bit of Hebrews 13.4, which says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So same idea. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. Let marriage be held in high esteem. Be aware that your view on such things is going to be under constant assault. So you have to protect it. You have to guard it. You're going to have to bat away anyone and anything that tries to undermine your commitment to purity. In verse 3, he uses a couple of figures of speech that both speak to the matter of memorization. We used to tie a string on our finger when we wanted to remember something. Now, I guess people just make a, a reminder notification in their phone. But for a few years still, this metaphor will probably make sense to at least older people, as will the idea of writing the instruction on a tablet that you hang over your heart. The father here, of course, is thinking of a small chalkboard-like thing, but to the modern reader, a digital tablet will suffice in terms of serving to preserve the metaphor. Write it down, Keep it handy. That's the idea. In verse 4, the metaphor shifts. The father says that the son is to develop an intimate relationship with this wise instruction. Know it as well as you know your sister. Actually, the metaphor is a little more intimate than it sounds in English. Tremper Longman III says here, In its ancient context, this language is intimate. Sister is here, not a reference to a sibling, but rather a romantic designation similar to its use in Song 4-9, closed quote. So be maximally intimate with this instruction, the father says. Wrap your arms around it, internalize it. That's the idea. It's not enough, of course, just to hear good advice or even to agree with good advice. Derek Sider says here, the best advice is useless against strong temptation unless it is thoroughly taken to heart and translated into habits, closed quote. And this, of course, is a foreshadow of how sanctification works in the New Testament. Internalizing wisdom will change you slowly by degrees over time. But how much further, faster, and stronger will that change be when the Spirit of Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, is internalized by the believer? 
The goal of this internalization, Old Testament and New, is to be strong enough to avoid temptation and to be free enough to live the life that we were created and intended to live. The conditions for life, to quote Van Leeuwen, are freedom within form, love within limits, and life within law, closed quote. That's the prospect that the Father is holding out to the Son in this passage. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me in here for a second so that we can drill down a little bit on what you just said there about freedom within boundaries or something to that effect. You cited Raymond Van Leeuwen as saying that the conditions for life are, quote, freedom within form, love within limits, and life within law. I feel like I'm on the edge of a profound revelation here. Can you unpack that just a little bit more for us? Absolutely. And, and it is profound. And I would argue that it is an underappreciated profundity within evangelical circles. What Van Leeuwen is highlighting there is that the goal of the sanctification process is joy and delight within the boundaries that God has established for human beings. The goal isn't begrudging obedience. The goal isn't even discipline and commitment. The goal is delight, joy, and freedom. So Proverbs is not focused on the law. It isn't opposed to the law. I'm just saying that its focus isn't on repeating or explaining the Ten Commandments. The law is about the outer boundaries, but wisdom is about how to live well, joyfully, productively, and prosperously within the line. It is thus complementary. Both are important. At Driver's Ed, they teach you about the little white lines and how important it is to not cross those little white lines because if you do, then you'll end up in the ditch. Right, or in a head-on collision. Right, and both are bad, right? But but there is a, there's way more to driving than just sticking between the little white lines. And it's that part that, that Proverbs is focused on. Proverbs is about the joy of driving on the road. It's about shifting gears. It's about the roar of the engine. It's about planning a trip, maximizing fuel economy, and enjoying the view. That's what Van Leeuwen means by freedom within form. And that's the goal of the sanctification process. When the Holy Spirit comes inside you, he starts to slowly but surely rewire your brain. It's like downloading a GPS program. So all your maps are updated. And then it's like he hooks into your car's navigation system. And so now you've got lane keep assist and he keeps bumping you towards the center. He's helping you love the road. And that's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, I think most evangelicals think, though, that that might mean if I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. Don't tell me what to do. Don't talk to me about the law. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Yeah, exactly. I, I think most people think that means that if I'm saved, then I, I can go ahead and cross whatever lines I want. But here's the thing. Why would you want to cross those lines? Those lines are marking the ditch. Why would you want to live in the ditch, right? And so what Paul actually is saying is that when you have the Spirit in you, You aren't white-knuckling the steering wheel trying to keep the car on the road. You are loving that space between the lines. You are free within the form. You are loving within the limits. You are living your life inside the law. That's what freedom is in the Bible. It is loving the life God made you to live. So to bring this in for a landing, the father wants the son to love being a husband, a father, and a community leader. 
And so here he's talking about how foolish it is to do life in the ditch, sexually speaking, right? In the ditch, you get quick and dirty. But who wants to live that way? That ends in death, disgust, and destruction. But up here on the road, things are really good. That's the idea that he's working here. Mm, I love it. And I totally see that now in all these fatherly talks that we're working through here. Thanks for unpacking that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 6. In verse 6, he begins to narrate, by way of negative example, the tragic fate of a foolish young man who was either not in possession of this instruction or who had failed to heed it. I think it's reasonable to assume that this is a rhetorical device. This is a story teaching a point, like the parables of Jesus. This is a standard technique within the wisdom genre. The father tells the story like this. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. Let me just pause briefly here. Houses in Israel at this time typically did not have windows on the ground floor, obviously to protect against theft. It would actually be better to translate the Hebrew here. I have looked down through my lattice. So the story pictures the father standing at the upstairs window, looking out at the street beneath. He says, And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The father has noticed a certain young man, a fool, obviously, walking back and forth by the house of the seductive woman. Perhaps he's working up his courage. Perhaps he's hoping to catch a glimpse of her passing by the window. He's like a fish nibbling at the bait on a hook. He comes at night, for as Shakespeare said, light and lust are deadly enemies. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. So again, we're talking about an unchaste wife here. She is dressed like a prostitute, but she isn't actually a prostitute. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She is looking for trouble, and in the person of this foolish young man, she has found it. Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Now I want to reference an observation here made originally by Athalia Brenner. She says something that I think we need to hear, although in our cultural climate today, it is difficult and even dangerous to say things like this. She says that the approach of the unchaste wife in terms of grabbing and kissing the young man, as well as her brazen, seductive speech, are the female counterpart of male rape. The male overcomes the female through physical force, the female through seduction. There is a sense in which an older female seductress may be said to overpower a younger, inexperienced male. Our laws recognize this phenomenon. Many female school teachers, for example, have been charged with rape, even though they did not use physical violence to entrap their victims. It is interesting here to note how the wise father sees things from his upstairs window. 
He ascribes blame to the young man for being foolish. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time is culpably stupid. If you wander into the lion enclosure at the zoo, you cannot claim foul play when you get eaten. So here, this young fool went looking for trouble and it found him. And yet the unchaste wife is to blame as well. The Bible is an equal opportunity offender. It does not bow before the current social trend. It tells the truth. And the truth is that there is plenty of blame to go around in this scenario. And it falls more or less equally on parties representing both genders. We also note here that this woman makes some nominal claim to religiosity. She says that she has just come from making a votive offering likely a peace offering. You can learn more about those in Leviticus 7. As Gordon Wenham explains, for many Israelites, the peace offering was the main, some would say the only, opportunity they had to eat meat, closed quote. So to set the scene, she has gone to the temple to make a free will offering associated with some sort of vow. As part of the ritual, a sacrificial animal was offered and she was presented with a portion of that for her own consumption. It was part of the celebration, as Wenham says. It would have been quite a treat to have that portion of meat to share with your household. Except she doesn't share it with her household. She says that she has set it aside for her special lover, which of course is an entirely bizarre thing to say. The picture is one of abject deceit and hypocrisy. Alan Ross is here. Apparently, the sacrificial worship meant as little to her spiritually as Christmas does to modern materialists who use the religious holiday as an excuse for secular pursuits, close quote. Indeed, the woman's preparations go beyond this jaw-dropping act of hypocritical sacrilege. She goes on to say in verse 16 and following, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. It goes without saying here that the woman is clearly not poor. She's a wealthy woman with time on her hands and wickedness in her heart. She has set an elaborate trap for this young fool, and he is overwhelmed by it. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The seductive woman has lured the young man into her deadly trap. She has led him like an ox to the slaughter. That's literally where that expression comes from. It means to be lured in. It means to be lied to. It means to be deceived and destroyed by flattery and titillation. The arrow piercing the liver refers to a particularly painful way to die. Verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart Turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down 
to the chambers of death. The poem ends with an appeal for the son, and by extension, all young people, to take the warning of the father seriously. He has seen many a victim caught in this type of trap. So be wise enough to learn from the example he has shared. Now let's pause and reflect upon this particular approach. It is interesting that the father comes at the issue this way. Trumper Longman III ruminates on this dynamic, noting he, referring to the father, he does not say, son, don't have sex with a strange woman because God tells you not to do it. Rather, his argument is, son, don't have sex with a strange woman because you will ruin your life and perhaps end it. And here is a story to illustrate what I'm telling you. Closed quote. Now, as Longman acknowledges, this is not to suggest that the father wouldn't and didn't make appeals to the law. It is simply to notice that here, the emphasis is clearly on helping the son understand why the law prohibits what it does. This is an unashamedly pragmatic argument, and there is a place for that. As parents, we don't want to just say, do what the Bible says. Rather, we want to show why our children should do what the Bible says and why the Bible says what it says in the first place. Doing this will cause our children to grow in their trust and love of God, as opposed to growing in resentment. Children need to see that God's ways are wise and good good and life-giving. The law is like a seatbelt or a road sign. It isn't meant to steal our joy. It's meant to save our lives and to point us in the direction of happiness and peace. The law is our friend, our teacher, and our guide. And the approach of the wise father in this story is underscoring that reality. Remember, wisdom is different than, but not opposed to, the law. The law is about outer boundaries and guardrails. Wisdom is about understanding outcomes, planning, and prioritization. Obviously, these things are complementary. But as parents, we do tend to default to the law. We like rules. Rules are easy. Rules are clear. Rules are good. I have them in my house. But as your children get older, they need to understand. They need to trust. And they need to love. And so this sort of approach needs to become a part of your parenting tool bag. All right, now before we leave this chapter, I want to go back to what I mentioned at the very beginning. Many scholars do believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who of course is the ultimate author of every passage of Scripture, and perhaps even with the understanding and cooperation of Solomon, the secondary author, this poem is pulling double duty. It's talking about two things simultaneously. On one level, the most obvious level, it is a discourse intending to warn against and discourage sexual immorality. It's a warning about the danger of overexposing ourselves to the wiles of the wicked woman. And at the same time, it is providing a similar warning about the dangers of living in an idolatrous culture. There are voices in the culture that would seek to lure us in with promises of delicacies and secret delights. But in truth, These promises are deceitful, and these invitations are merely the worm on the hook trying to ensnare us in the ways and works of death. On both levels, the practical takeaway is the same. Live in the center of the straight road that leads to life, and be careful about the times and places where you'll be exposed to dangerous temptations. There are seductresses out there, literally 
and metaphorically, who know how to set a trap, who know how to tell a story, who know how to appeal to a young person's appetite and ego. And so if you want to survive your journey through this fallen and corrupt world, you need to know your limits. You need to know when to turn away. You need to know when to stop looking, when to stop listening, and when to run for your life. That's true when it comes to sexuality, and that's true when it comes to matters of faith. There are always whispers coming at us from just off the road. There are always glimpses down the alley and in the shadows. But remember, sexual immorality always overpromises, and so too does idolatry. In the end, they are both just so many off-ramps leading you away from the path that leads to life and down the road that leads to death and ruin. So be wise, beware, and be watchful. That's what the father is saying here to his son and to all the rest of us listening in as well. Thanks be to God. Well, amen to that. Pastor Paul, before we wrap things up here, I just want to go back to what you said there about the importance of making a pragmatic argument to our kids when it comes to some of these moral issues. We can't just say, don't do that because it breaks the seventh commandment. I mean, that might be true, and it's not wrong to say that, but the Bible seems to be saying that we can't just say that. We have to say it is wrong, it is against God's law, and it isn't the way to be happy this isn't the way to be healthy. It won't lead to stability, joy, and human flourishing. So the Bible isn't saying we should say less to our kids, if I'm hearing you right. It's teaching that we, in fact, should say more. Yeah, absolutely. The Apostle Paul talks about weapons for the right hand and weapons for the left, meaning we have to have more than one approach on these things. Some kids might be impressed by the whole, you know, thou shalt not argument, but other kids are going to ask why. And, and so we need to do both. The goal is to get them to connect the commands of God with the best outcomes of happiness, stability, prosperity, and joy. Eventually, we want them to just trust that God's ways are right. Ultimately, that's what it means to be restored as a human being. It means to be content and trusting under the word and rule of God. Human beings got into trouble when they began to doubt the goodness of God's law. So restoration is about loving it and trusting it and living joy-filled, happy, stable lives within it. Mm, freedom within form. Exactly that. All right. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 